All right, everybody. Welcome to this week in startups full news show today. We do have interviews on the way because I know you are missing them. We're just sort of getting the vibe. We're getting the vibe down as co-hosts, but you know, we're going to talk to some, uh, some other people going forward today, though, on the show, $170 billion going into electric vehicles combined by Toyota and Volkswagen. Even Sony apparently is going to make an electric car. We're going to talk about what is coming up in that market. OpenSea just raised $300 million at a $13.3 billion valuation. So we talk about whether it's a bubble. And I think you can say, yes, it's a bubble because Jason just bought his first NFTs. (laughs) And also (laughs) that bubble just popped because Keanu Reeves might have just killed NFTs. Kill my NFTs, Keanu. (laughs) (laughs) Jason's like, let me just have one day. Can I get a 10x before you kill him, Keanu? Come on. (laughs) Let me right now. Uh, Speaking of killing, China's tight regulation is killing their consumer tech industry. We wrap up then with Ben Smith leaving the New York Times to team up with Bloomberg Media CEO to start a mystery new media company. And we play my new favorite game, Would You Invest? Would you invest? It's going to be a great show. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Real Good Foods is modernizing frozen foods and has become one of the fastest growing food brands in the U.S., Everything Real Good Foods makes is low in carbs, high in protein, and made from real food ingredients. Go to realgoodfoods.com and use code TWIST for $15 off. Marlo. Every founder should have a coach to help them become more effective at managing and leading their teams. Get 15% off your coaching membership at getmarlo.com slash twist and... Linode has a startup program built specifically for founder-led early-stage startups. It's called Rise, and it comes with a three-year discount program and tech consultants to help with infrastructure growth. Apply today at linode.com slash twist. All right, so today we have learned via various channels, including CES, because yes, that's happening, that a lot of new electric cars are coming to the market mainly from Toyota and Volkswagen, which are going to invest a combined $170 billion to take on Tesla over the next decade, and also Sony. I'm, I'm sorry. Pause I, I heard, while you my, digest. Was, <laughs> exactly. my, uh, my monitor fell out. I thought you said Sony was going to make yeah. new cars. Yeah. Sony. Okay. Sony, which Sony. apparently belatedly discovered that like nobody pays very much money for TVs anymore. And there are, in fact, there is an upper limit on how many PlayStations you can sell. Will it have a mini disc in the dashboard? Oh man, I hope so. (laughs) Mini disc was pretty dope. (laughs) Mini disc actually would be pretty, I mean, look, they're going to need something as a gimmick. So they might as well go mini disc, I think. Yeah. They unveiled a concept car at CES, which is adorable. The Sony Vision S. which looks a little bit like there's like one that looks like a Jaguar and one that looks like if a Maserati mated with a Model S huh? kind of and said, sure, why not? Oh, there it is. Okay. I see the pictures. Yeah. I I skipped ahead a tiny bit in our rundown here. No problem. uh, Okay. I mean, it's easy to make a prototype. We all know that. Yeah. So I give zero points for prototypes. Is this dashboard going to have like 8,000 buttons? I mean, Sony is not known for restraint in the number of buttons. Uh, I, I think people are going to be crashing these cars. I think so. Yeah. I mean, if these cars ever actually start to exist. And so what is more interesting, what is certainly, this is like a fun flash in the pan. And to me, it shows the fact that, you know, companies of all stripes, certainly the fact that you have EV startups that aren't car makers all by itself is, is super interesting and shows the potential. The fact that Sony is like, maybe we could make some money here shows the increasing potential. And then when you start talking about dollar amounts in the hundreds of billions, and, and mm. evidently, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, VW's CEO, and Volkswagen, of course, makes much more than Volkswagen's, right. talks about Elon Musk and Tesla so much that his yeah. employees are like, we got it. We yeah. got it. <laughs> well, I mean, Volkswagen also had the horrible scandal where they were faking their emissions right and they paid a yep. huge fine yeah and then they got religion and said okay we're going to overdo this and go into electric vehicles and this was always um tesla's vision and elon's vision was we want to inspire people to make more cars so i think it's absolutely fantastic and yeah tesla it's had a record quarter they over delivered and the stock went up 10 percent this week or something and they've got all those plants online the, the gigafactories that are just like dreadnoughts they just pump out pump out uh cars and then they're opening germany and 
Austin, mm. I think this year. So when those two things come online, my Lord, I mean, the amount of EV production is going to go through the roof. And also Ford said their demand is so high. And I think it's very interesting to your uh, passion for sustainability. I really feel like this was driven not just by the amazing efforts of Tesla. And, you know, that was obviously, you know, Herculean in terms of getting, you know, breaking this wide open. 100%. But I think consumers now really care about this issue. And yep. when they go to buy something, whether it's an impossible burger or a car or they're buying clothes, they're saying, how does this impact the planet? And, and that is pretty amazing if, if you think about the change because in our generation, it was Gen, Gen X was kind of like, we care about this. And it maybe came into people's behavior. Boomers didn't really care um, and certainly not before them. Mm -hmm. And now I think this is the lens at which people make their decisions. Yep. And maybe Absolutely. all generations, they're actually making their decisions to spend more money than they need to, to feel better about what they're doing on the planet. Mission pretty, accomplished. It is a remarkable shift. And frankly, I think as, you know, like Gen X would have and didn't have anything to buy. So to your point about Tesla, to, to the point about the, this entire market, like there is a role for everybody to play here, including consumers, and they need something, they need somewhere to go. Like I think Launch is an investor in Wearloom, is that right? Which is like yep. a used clothes marketplace. Yep. All of those things are sustainability plays. Everything related to decarbonization or electric cars. And yeah, 100%, people are willing to pay you know, Bill Gates calls it the green premium. And mm -hmm. he has positioned it as like, if you have a green premium for your product, it's death because it, people aren't going to pay more to go green. And it turns out that's just not true. Like mm. people, there's a, first of all, there's a lot of money sloshing around in this economy and people are willing to spend it to signal, what is it? Show me your budget and I'll show you what your priorities are. Yeah. They're willing to spend it to signal what they care about. And yep. I think actually that comp competition in the EV space is super exciting. Like if prices yeah. come down and more cars are available, but one thing I will say, like, I'm really interested in these announcements. I've driven the Volkswagen ID4 a Pretty little good. bit. Um, it has pros and cons. I like that it, it, they've done some really clever things with the design to sort of copy a little bit of the Tesla look. Like they've got neat LEDs that like they kind of like do like a kit car green when it's charging, oh, like, and it's like the LEDs in there are really fun. I like that it's got a dashboard display in addition to the one in the middle. Like my Y, I think the S has a dashboard display, but like the Y doesn't. It's just no. one big screen in the middle, right? So I kind of liked having that. The turning radius is one gertrillion times better than the Y, which is oh, like really? got the turning oh, so radius they make of the, the car, Titanic. The tires turn further in rotation or something? It's just tight. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it'll it's make it's just making good turns and it looks pretty good. It does not it looks have the okay. Tesla. Yeah. It looks yeah. like fine. Not for me, but it looks okay. So I'm super so basically like my curiosity is what is what are these cars that are made by people whose core competency is making cars yes. going to seem like? Is it going to be a more car-like experience that's more comforting to people mm. as opposed to like holy crap, everything about this is different, which is a which is a harder mainstream sell? Yeah. And I'm getting, just spoiler, I'm getting an e-tron loaner for okay. a couple weeks. Nice. So that I can hopefully now, give my impressions. who makes the e-tron? That's Ford? Audi. 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 Oh, the Audi e-tron. Which is yeah. Volkswagen. The Volkswagen family. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And then like, yeah, I hope to try the Ford. I'm just, because I really do think right now, and even as a consumer who like, look, I'm obsessed with cars. So this is yeah. just feeding into the thing that I like to do. Tesla still is the only car that I would buy or tell people to buy because the range and the infrastructure yeah. can't be beat. And so when you have these car makers like Toyota talking about being here in 10 years, you've lost. Yeah, it's, that's, yeah, it's crazy. That's I mean, the bonkers. people don't understand the impact of the supercharger network. I think it's greatly yeah. underestimated. We all know how hard it is to eat healthy when you're working crazy hours. But thankfully, Real Good Foods is working hard to help. They make nutritious foods more accessible to improve your health. And they're one of the fastest growing frozen food brands in the US. I've tried their foods. They're amazing, delicious, really well done. In fact, they just went public back in November under the ticker symbol RGF. So congrats to the team over there on their IPO. 
And they make all the food you love. Italian entrees, pizza, Mexican breakfast sandwiches. I've had the pizza. Very good. All 100% grain-free, low in carbs, and high in protein. You know that whole thing that makes you lose a little bit of weight and a little bit healthier. I'm doing it. It's working. And... It's all made from real food ingredients. Real Good Foods is perfect if you're trying to cut back on those carbs like I am or get more protein from real food, which I'm also trying to do. Maybe you're just trying to eat healthy in general. And this is a great option as opposed to maybe, you know, ordering something in that's not as good for you. So they are now available in the freezer sections at Costco, Walmart, Target, and most grocery stores nationwide. And a big goal of theirs is to support food banks across the U.S. by donating 1 million nutritious meals. So here's a call to action for you. Go to realgoodfoods.com and use the code TWIST for $15 off. Learn more about Real Good Foods at realgoodfoods.com and follow them on social, Real Good Foods, at Real Good Foods. Great job, Real Good Foods. Really enjoyed the product. I don't know if you've taken, have you taken road trips in your yeah, Model Y? I've driven to LA twice. And driving to LA is such a delightful experience in a Tesla. You stop for, I have, I get 320 miles, I think, on my Y. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's pretty accurate. I mean, if you go above 65, it obviously goes down a bit. But I stop once, which I like to stop two or three times. I'm one of those guys who likes to yeah. stop and get a coffee, use the loo. Maybe I, I stop for a full lunch and, you know, I just like a break. I'm like, yeah. I like the, I'm not the going for a record guy. But I love stopping at the Tesla supercharged with the 250 megawatt. It's a 250 megawatt kilowatt. Kilowatt. Mm-hmm. kilowatt. That 250 one. It's great. I was getting 700 miles an hour added to the yeah. battery. And I was like, okay, that's more than I need. Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that that's like what consumers don't understand now and will start to understand is that that super fast charging is the the silent advantage. Yeah. That... I mean, I, I have heard tell that Tesla might start to open it up, but like right now, to, yeah. it is really hard to imagine a car maker really, truly catching up with people's range, range anxiety without that infrastructure. And the ones who are saying 10 years or Honda, I looked up Honda just out of curiosity because they were pretty early with hybrids. They're talking about an EV fleet by 2030. Yeah, no. I'm like, you lost. do you even care about the planet, bro? No. That's just, you know what that and is? That's them, that's them signaling. Like, please don't regulate us or please don't give us too many fines. We'll buy the EV credits or whatever, the carbon credits. But I like this. uh, We call it in the industry, little big details. I like the fact that car Mm -hmm. manufacturers are really thinking about the little details of like, hey, Spotify. I don't know if you saw the Tesla has Spotify in the dashboard now. Speaking of Spotify, we were talking about earlier. That's really cool that when you load your Spotify, you have all your playlists and everything uh, ready to go. And then I don't know if you've tried this, but when I was in my Model Y and I was parked, and I, I wanted to fully charge it because I was going to an Airbnb where they didn't have a charger. Mm-hmm. And I was going to have to plug in the 110. I was like, let me just fully charge it. So I was going to be there for 45 minutes or something. And I was like, oh my God, Hulu and Netflix. Yeah. I put on Hulu. I log in with my Hulu credentials and I'm watching live TV. Totally. I and I was like, my- really? Am I really watching live TV? Yeah. My son and I will literally go. There's like one in Emeryville that's by the kind of Emeryville food court, which has all this yummy food. And we will go and we'll pick our favorite foods and we will have a picnic in the car and yeah. watch Hulu and supercharge. Because it's just like legitimately pretty fun. The entertainment factor is huge. Also, I've made that car fart every possible way that it's <laughs> able to fart. And I know that like, yeah, that's not a reason to love a car, but you can turn the horn into a fart. Uh, and it is so funny. Go look at the website, littlebigdetails.com. LittleBigDetails.com is a very cool website where these designers talk about little details that are completely unnecessary to put in your products, but that become this reminder that somebody at the company is paying attention. I Uh, just talked to a woman who calls it Brilliant Basics. And I was like, yes. Not bad. Not bad. Get the basics right. Alliteration. Little Big Details is better, though. That is really Uh, charming. Little Big Details is just like this movement amongst designers to just pay attention, you know? Totally. And if you can give somebody a little taste of considered it's like being considered it's like when you go to a great restaurant and they bring you like you know an intramezzo or Mm -hmm. a little something you know with the check you know a couple of pieces of candy they made themselves all those little details add up to experience writ large and you know i think that's what you're seeing for these automakers but uh, i think you really are yeah Yeah. i think it's good i'm excited about the competition do you you really think apple's gonna make a car i I have well i know they put put my two dollars on it never coming out um Who's the kid? Kevin, who was doing the watch and then was at Adobe before it? Somebody doing yeah. Google search. Didn't Kevin, they leave? Adobe. Didn't they all leave? No, he went from Adobe. Then he did the watch. 
mm-hmm. saw him on Halloween, just randomly ran into him um, and uh, said hi. And I was like, look, I bought your watch. I was like, the first three versions were unusable. <laughs> but I, so he's not coming on the show. True. I said, but version six is really good. He's like, thanks, J. Cal. <laughs> I was like, like look, I wa- I'm saying it to you in private. And I didn't say it on the show. Well, I just did say it on the show. But anyway, yeah. the first like three, ver- I bought two versions of the iWatch, the first and like, I think the third. And I was like, this is terrible. And I yeah. just gave it to my assistant. I was like, get this thing off my wrist. I'm going back to my Fitbit. And now I have uh, version six and version six is amazing. So really great. Kevin Lynch. Thanks, J Sound. Kevin Lynch will mm-hmm. not be on the program. Um, but he is... <laughs> Uh, no, he he'll, he might. Well, Apple famously doesn't. But Kevin Lynch, if somebody, I mean, they don't talk. They don't talk. But he's in charge of the was it Titan project? I think they were codenaming mm-hmm. it. And so he's in charge of Titan. And obviously, they did have a 1000 engineers on this, or a 1000 people because you just saw the names on uh, LinkedIn. So yeah. I think Apple doesn't like employees to put their themselves on LinkedIn, but you can't technically tell employees not to you can encourage them not to i think yeah i think i mean i would if i, I was know, a ceo I'd like, like don't put this on your linkedin i don't i mean i don't think they're gonna at some point it was like they had d- announced that they were gonna pivot to make software for cars yes the dashboard of an actual car the dashboard which fine they have no I, choice I but to spend 10 made a car they have no choice but to spend 10 20 billion dollars working on it i always thought apple should have bought tesla and i wrote a blog post apple should buy mm-hmm. tesla for 75 billion when Tesla was like 25 billion and uh, talk about a prescient post because now they're both worth 3 billion and a trillion and uh, 3 trillion and a trillion. And yeah. I just said, can you imagine the model three or model Y in an Apple store? Like and you come in to right, get your phone like, and you see the right Tesla in. there. It'd be like game over. How many also, cars honestly, would they sell? If my Tesla, other than the various try to kill me issues that it does have had <laughs> CarPlay. I would be the happiest girl in the world. Like, I don't it want, is, uh, it's nice that it has Spotify or whatever, but I don't want, I want to use Apple Maps. That's what kind of girl I, like, I'm just like, give me my own, that is just a, give me CarPlay. That is a super uh, challenge. Oh yeah, there's my piece that I wrote. I got to go back to these blog posts I used to write. Some of them Seriously, are crazy. Seriously, and see, I gotta go yeah. Check these out. I, can I ask a question about CES? That wasn't canceled in the face of Omicron? Can you the, believe The super that? spreader of all super spreaders is occurring right now? It is occurring right now. I mean, if I had, if I were a betting woman and I'm only allowed to bet in $2 increments, okay, I would bet that they will have a 50% positivity rate at CES. I mean, it's just such a terrible, everybody pulled yeah. out, but it was like too late for them. I mean, I almost have to feel bad for CES because it was such bad timing. Mm. They were like, okay, we're back. This is the big, yeah. but they really wanted to plow ahead last year too. I mean, they almost yeah. had to be pressured to cancel it. And then yeah. it was sort of like, it was too late. Ex- exhibitors were already building. Mm. But then exhibitors pulled out. I mean, there's probably, I don't know, 85 people there now. And <laughs> yeah, how do you get your employee? How do you force employees to go to CES? I mean, it's hard enough to yeah. force your employees to go to CES just in flu season, which is when it occurs. Like they're like, you know, it'd be a great time to have everybody from around the world converge in the most bacteria laden city in the world. It's like an industry joke, the CES yeah. flu. Because yeah. we're always like, oh, we got the CES flu, of course. And now it's I like stopped going just, for that. Like, it was yeah. just too, I, it was too brutal to like start the year off with the flu. They might in COVID times want to consider a springtime show instead of a January show. It's rough. Yeah, I don't get the, the January. I guess maybe it's January in Vegas is cheap. You can take over the whole city. They probably looked at the months and said, which month can we take over for the right price and own it? Or it could just be a historical thing. But yeah, I, uh, that's kind of crazy that they did it. And then I just got a note from my school. That like 40 people uh, have yeah. Omicron, like 11 yeah. teachers, 30 students, whatever. And it's like, oh, my God, like this thing is really spreading, even in the Bay Area where people are. Oh, it's unstoppable. The most vaxxed and the most compliant. Yeah, it's unstoppable, Omicron. Listen, as a founder, it's really hard to find the time to become a great manager on your own. And that's where Marlowe comes in. Marlowe's one-to-one management training and coaching helps managers level up faster. They take the best parts of executive coaching and combine it with their proprietary management training program so you can become more effective and efficient at managing your team. And being a great manager is the difference between having a great team or 
having people leave your team and having constant turnover. People don't quit jobs, they quit bad managers. You know that uh, adage, and it's very true. So you're going to work with a dedicated coach to help you identify which areas need improvement. Then you'll focus on developing the most important habits and skills. Members currently rate their coaching experience 9.9 .9 out of 10. And Marlowe works with managers and emerging leaders in startups like Scribd, Kim's and Her, Statusphere, and many more. So what about the rest of your team? Marlowe has them covered. They can provide your entire team with the support they need to be successful. So go to getmarlowe.com slash twist to get 15% off your individual or team memberships. That's getmarlowe.com slash twist to get 15% off. NFT platform OpenSea just announced a $300 million Series C at a $13.3 billion valuation. The round is led by Co2. Uh, and the crypto firm Paradigm. Uh, remember, we covered OpenSea employees front running, uh, aka insider trading, uh, would be another way to phrase it. On featured NFTs back in episode 1283, they took uh, action against that employee who was a top level employee who was buying NFTs before they became available, hmm. um, which is what uh, VCs and everybody else is doing, uh, you know, insiders are doing as part of the process of supporting these. And I actually bought two NFTs. I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, we had OpenSea CEO uh, Devin Finzer on episode 1255, really smart cat. Uh, and they mentioned a large part of this fundraising will be used, quote, to significantly improve customer support and customer safety because people have had their uh, NFTs stolen, as uh, happens with any digital asset of value. The currently, they currently have over 60 employees on the customer support trust safety teams. Uh, they'll probably have to add a zero to that. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, in fact, said they're going to double it. And uh, yeah, I bought uh, two NFTs, which I'll talk about in a moment. So OpenSea's transaction volume increased 600x in 2021. So <laughs> one transaction now equals 600. Wow. That's bonkers. Over 900,000 wallets have been made, I guess, at their site with at least, uh, have made at least one transaction. 900 yeah. wallets have made at least one transaction. In each of the last three days, there's been over $240 million in trading volume on OpenSea. I'll give a note about trading volume uh, that that could be painting the tape or people sending NFTs to each other uh, for any kind of nefarious uh, reason. So just keep mm. that in mind. Uh, thanks to Richard Chen, who set these monitoring dashboards up on Dune Analytics. Here you can see the volume. Since OpenSea takes 2.5% of every transaction, they took an estimated $81 million in revenue on $3.2 billion in volume for December. Uh, that is a very small take rate compared to the 30% that Apple takes and the 45% of advertising that YouTube takes. So yeah, good point. Just something to consider there that they're they could probably take 5% or 10% or seven and a half percent and probably see no change. Any what's thoughts? interesting, yeah. well, so what's interesting about OpenSea is that just as a, a pure matter of business, that is, uh, it is smart to have set up a marketplace to sit in between creators of NFTs and potential buyers of NFTs. Yep. They're taking a small enough cut that they aren't driving people away from the platform. And in order to popularize a new technology, it does help to have an easy retail location. Yep. And... And this is like literally contrary to what people want NFTs to be. Right. The existence how, of OpenSea so, yeah. is like anathema to a lot of the true believers in what they're calling Web3 and the idea of these decentralized technologies that take, you know, away from, I mean, what OpenSea has become in some ways is a bit of a gatekeeper. If you, yes. you have to find the NFT there, it has to be listed there in order to buy it, mm -hmm. not Obviously, NFTs can exist anywhere, right? But if you want to buy it on OpenSea, it has to be listed there. And they froze some of those assets after there was theft. Right. And it is unquestionably a centralized marketplace for a decentralized technology. And so it is, I wonder if you think that the pushback against this from a philosophical perspective is actually a business risk for OpenSea. Yeah, I mean, it just shows how uh, Web2, uh, the existing paradigm, is better for most consumers people want something that's easy to use mm -hmm. trusted and that in a place where somebody picks up the phone when something is stolen or a transaction doesn't occur the overwhelming majority of consumers like 90 percent want to have a place that's trusted 
where there is customer support, where there is central authority when mm -hmm. involved in a transaction. There are a small number of people, early true believers, who want this to be more complicated, uh, you know, or maybe they don't want it to be more complicated, but they'll accept it being more complicated in order to have nobody as an intermediary. Yep. Which is the word I'm using for middleman now. So <laughs> non-gender uh, specific. So in, if you can remove the intermediaries, that is what Web3 is about. And people keep dunking on OpenSea for not having that. Well, at the same time, consumers kind of want it. And they're willing to pay that 2.5%. They're willing to pay the VIG because mm -hmm. it adds a level of sustainability to the service. It's not going to go down. There's a group of people keeping it up and running. But, you know, Bitcoin doesn't have an OpenSea equivalent, right? I mean, maybe Coinbase yeah. you could consider. Coinbase, I guess, uh, yeah. Maybe you could consider it uh, being an equivalent of it. But uh, it is a huge risk as a business that somebody could make an easy to use permissionless, you know, non uh, with no intermediary. That is a business mm -hmm. risk, I think. But if they keep the 2.5% low, who cares? That's like a what Visa charges restaurants, right? Or MasterCard. Yep. So it's such a small take rate on such a large amount of money moving around that I think they'll be fine. Uh, and they're obviously making if they're making 80 million a month, that means they're making a billion a year. A billion mm -hmm. a year and you know going and they're growing 600x if it grows even just 3x year over year that would support this um 10 times 13 times run rate valuation so yeah, i'm always I doing can't... that math in my brain you know and i think you know and there are these questions about if NFT if nfts turn out to be a bubble can OpenSea maintain that valuation and the fact is OpenSea and centralized marketplaces like it i mean i'm sorry i'm not trying to commit sacrilege here but they're actually the key to making sure it isn't a bubble. Like it will be mainstreamed and become something that if you're NFT curious and you can go and shop like a nice looking marketplace and be like, oh yeah, I would spend my money on this digital piece of art, especially if there's an asset attached to it. And maybe even if there's not, like people legitimately like art in lots of forms and aren't that worried about rep I'm not even really particularly down on NFTs even though they're probably also a bubble right now. But, you know, realistically, you have to accept that if they're going to become mainstream and not disappear as a bubble, not just pop, it will probably be as a result of centralized marketplaces because the people who really care about decentralization don't usually seem to also care about UI. Um, they're willing to deal with, yeah, that poor UI, poor user experience in order to, you know, have it be cooler and not controlled by anybody. You know, yeah. you can use Netflix and hulu and uh disney plus or i guess you could use BitTorrent uh if people are still using it and like yeah i'm sure there are tons of people using BitTorrent to watch movies or whatever or it's like okay for 12 bucks i can watch the book of boba fett and i have a beautiful interface and i don't need to go to you know the pirate bay or whatever to and to get like my... seven kinds of malware yeah. and all of the other things yeah. that go along with that however i will say this conversation is completely moot yeah. because NFCs. And NFTs are over. They died. Oh, they died. At oh, the I, didn't, hands. I didn't get the news flash. They they died at the hands of America's beloved Keanu Reeves. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, do we have any yeah. tape of him murdering them? <laughs> we, do, we do. I'm afraid we do. Oh, During an interview with The Verge, Keanu Reeves was asked his opinion about NFTs that were made for the Matrix Resurre Resurrections film. And they were so popular, they crashed the website that they were sold on. And so here is a 41 second clip of Keanu Reeves uh, being informed of and responding to the NFT question. Did you guys see the Matrix NFT thing that they did for Resurrections just a couple days ago? They no. Had, they made uh, NFTs for the new movie and there were like 100,000 of them and the site broke like in the first few hours because there were over 300,000 people in the queue trying to buy these NFTs for $50. Um, and so like when you think about the concept of digital scarcity and things that are, you know, they can't be copied. That are easily reproduced. <laughs> well, but they're not the same, right? It's not a fake version of you. I wonder what our, do we get a cut of that? Oh no, I don't, actually I don't think we're in them. They probably did other people. You have to take that up with the studio. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I, I know that journalist. Yeah, he got the, I guess the Matrix interview. That was I fantastic. So. I mean, just, to the folks at Warner Brothers, if you're going to sell a bunch of NFTs and get in on the grift and secure the bag, you might want to get the two lead actors in the film. Cut your talent taste. in. Yeah, maybe Come give on. them a cut. 
cut your time. So they in. can say totally awesome, it's the future, as opposed to we didn't get any, it's stupid. This is the direct quote from Keanu Reeves, echoed by Beardscript in our chat right now. They're easily reproduced. Yeah. And then the he end. left. <laughs> wah, wah. They're over now. They're over. Uh, and I guess the counter argument would be, yes, people can go take a picture of the Mona Lisa. Or actually, maybe you're not allowed to take a picture of the Mona Lisa. I think but you're you not. Can, no, you, you could take well, a. I don't know, the last time I was there, you could take a picture of the Mona. You Lisa. could take a picture of the Mona Lisa. So you can take a picture of the Mona Lisa and have your own one of one photo and put it on your desktop yeah. or any number you of copies be. of it. You don't own the Mona Lisa. People buy tons of art that could look just like. Like if you don't, if you are not a super serious collector, like I have a friend who's an interior designer, and every time we go somewhere, like oh, there's a new mid-century restaurant in town, and she's like replica, 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 not replica, replica. I cannot tell. Right. I don't know that those things are replicas. They are good enough for me. And having the original would make me feel good, even if I knew someone could make an exact replica. Like, frankly, NFTs in that regard are no different from the physical world. It's just maybe easier to replicate. I feel the same way. I would very much like to see a Corvette made from like the 1960s or 70s and make it electric and put in all the new stuff. And I don't want to own the old one because I want all the new tech. Yeah. When they made this new electric Mustang, I was talking to an executive at Ford and I was like, you guys blew it. How are you guys like so clueless? Take the original Mustang pony car that no everybody no loves on the show. That's iconic. Yeah, Ford's off the show. Um, that's so iconic. Yeah. And make an electric version of that and make a limited edition of 10,000 of them and number them. Mm -hmm. And it literally could look like that cherry red convertible pony car, but it's got perfect brakes. And yep. all-wheel drive, so you can drive it in bed, you know. Dude, and I would sell my house for that. Like, exactly. That. And instead, they made a weird mom car, which I'm into because I'm a mom, but it's not a Mustang. It's too much of a mom car. You, you're a mom who would like to have something that is not 5% right. evocative of a muscle car. You would want something that is 100% evocative of a muscle car. It's a heartbreaker. It is a real weird use of the Mustang brand. That mustang car is so ugly i don't know if we can pull yeah. up a picture of it i was like i had a, my first car was a 73 mustang grande <gasps> I like had a the 68. last yeah you had a 68 okay yeah and like this is looks like Ugh, it's not even a mom car i don't know what that didn't is they make like an ugly bmw like that that had that like weird i'm not an suv but i'm not a sedan kind of the they X1, call those crossovers, right? Yeah. Yeah, crossovers. The X1 is a little bit like that, but this is like got some weird Audi lines. Like it's too sharp. It's just not right. It's not right. And then to put a Mustang logo on that is just an insult to Mustang fans everywhere. Like seriously, I mean, it, worst job ever. Like yeah. that, what they should have put a Ford that's a Ford Taurus, not a Mustang. Oh, they should have called it a Taurus. That is still a beloved brand. Like people like it, and then you okay, wouldn't have to dilute Mustang. That is a that is we more evocative it. of a Taurus. You're welcome, Ford. It's a Taurus. Take the logo off the front and put a Taurus logo on it. I think it would call sell it, better if it was a Ford Taurus. People did love their Ford Tauruses, right? Yes. Call it a Taurus show, which is the Taurus race car. Oh, okay. I am off the rails in the car department. I will go on. I didn't know that. Oh, wow. This is another thing that we have in common. We're both into muscle cars. Oh I God. really wanted to buy a, uh, like another, you know, 70 to 73. I love those 70 to 73 Mustangs. You can pull up the 73 Mustang Grande with the vinyl roof in gold. That's what I had. <gasps> Bought it for 650 bucks in Brooklyn, had a hole in the floorboard. So when the passenger could see the road, it was like, you know, really cool yeah. augmented reality yeah. feature before so augmented fun. reality. It was like <laughs> rusted out. And I almost died in that car. There would be no this week in Star Yeah, The Chevy Nova was, I think, notorious for that too. Yeah, I had my, I inherited my grandparents' 68 Mustang. Wow. What color? And was it convertible it or hard blue, top? blue and it was not a convertible. It was hard top. It was the, you know, I mean, it was like not even the three on the tree. Like it was the straight six. It was the grandma version of the 68 Mustang, but oh my God. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. That one is like a Mach 1. You can see with the racing stripes. That's not what I yeah. had. I had a, but that is the 73 style, which is, I mean, that is the entire muscle. front of the car is a 351 Cleveland uh, engine that when you hit the gas, the car would tilt up because there was so much power. <laughs> and it, we put a four-barrel carburetor on it because we were like looking for stuff to do. And we figured out how to change the carburetor and we put a four-barrel carburetor on instead of two. It went from like 11 miles to the gallon to like six. But <laughs> the noise that this thing made was unbelievable. There's a company now that's turning classic cars into EVs. And I'm ah, there you so go. That's, what, that's my car. It. 
Yeah. Uh, mustache. Yeah, that's like there the mustard is. color. <gasps> that is spectacular. Yeah. It was awesome. So I want, th there's a convertible version of the 70 to 73 iconic. And people don't like this one. They love the pony car. Yeah. But this was when, when, when uh, muscle cars peaked, which was 70 to 73, right before the oil crisis in the later 70s. They just kept saying, how much bigger can we make the engines? And mm -hmm. uh, this was peak, like 351 Cleveland craziness. It's incredible. It's incredible. Incredible. And there's like a little- The Gen Z, I will say like, we love the 60s. The Gen yeah. Z is all about these 70s era cars because they're a little bit mm -hmm. more recent history. And if you think mm -hmm. about like the generations always love, you know, yeah, two back or They love their or... parents' 80s Volvos, the Saab. Yes. Remember the really Saab the convertible? Uh, was so it the good. Volkswagen Cabriolet? Like that was like the sorority girl car when I was growing up. Was that like convertible? I bought Saab. one of those when I moved to California. It was the girliest car I'd ever had. I named it Babs. I was like, I don't even know who I am right wow. now. I had a white Cabriolet convertible. And I, I mean, like, I but those are good times. Those are good times in California when you take the top down to drive to San Francisco oh from the East Bay. And you drive up the one, like oh, into Marin. I mean, that's I was the life. Like, who, I wanted to who write a letter to my 14-year-old self and just be like, hang on, honey, because it gets amazing. Literally, you grew up where? Montana and North Dakota. Right. So like you didn't literally. Have convertibles because they would just crack and fall in. Yeah. And nor did you have any. Yeah, you, you didn't coast. have a, not you didn't a have any coastline. ocean, not a lot of coastline. You could cruise in your Mustang along the Missouri River listening to the Lost Boys soundtrack, which I was a big fan of in high school, right. but Way to go. Know, not <laughs> quite the same. <laughs> not quite, not quite in the same level. All right, let's keep the show moving. Cloud infrastructure costs are one of the biggest expenses for startups, and they're also some of the most unpredictable. It's no wonder that many startups get lured to the major cloud providers with the promise of all these free credits only to wind up locked into unpredictable cloud bills and outrageous costs. I've had this happen myself. Well, Linode is here to change the cloud journey for startups. How? Well, they provide predictable pricing. So you don't have any sticker shock, you don't have any unnecessary overages, and they have industry leading price to performance ratios with simplified infrastructure. And of course, they have 24 seven 365 day a year award winning support. So here is your call to action. Linode has a startup program called Rise. It was built specifically for founder-led early-stage startups, and they're offering a three-year discount program. They will give you technology consultants to help guide your infrastructure growth. You can apply to the Rise program today as a startup at linode.com slash twist. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash twist. Thank you so much to for Linode sponsoring all these great uh, startups and, and for the Rise program. It's really a great service, and it's great that you're of service to the startup community. I really appreciate that. Linode.com slash twist. Oh, oh, and then I just wanted to say I, I did buy two NFTs uh, for $11,000 Oh, yeah, each. tell us about the NFTs to, to the so, extent that you can. They have assets attached to them. They're not just... So, you know, I think NFTs for art are cool, but I'm not like a huge art person. And I think people who like collectibles, sure, I see it. I do think some of these things are ridiculously overpriced, obviously. Uh, however, I think NFTs as a way to show your membership in a club, like the Board Ape, Yacht, Board Ape Yacht Club and some of these things, if there is a real world component is interesting. Mm -hmm. So a very notable founder who I've known for a long time, uh, who has like really great connections in the entertainment industry, and I'll, I'm going to leave it at that top level there, has created a series of NFTs and a company. So I invested a little bit in the company. I think I put 50 or 100k into the company. And I, you know, when I'm trying to learn, placing a bet is a great way to learn. So placing a small bet of 50k, you know, it's like if you lose it, and you get an education, you know, as an investor, you got an education, right? And it focuses your energy, it focuses your energy, and your attention on this project. So that's why I did it small bet, not like a, you know, million dollar or $3 million bet, which we make a lot at the syndicate.com and at launch. Uh, and then they were like, hey, and by the way, here are the NFTs. There are going to be this many. If you would like, you can buy up to two of them at the original price. So we're not front running the market, but because we're investors, we do get an allocation in those, uh, which I think is fair. Uh, if you back the company, it's not like we're the public's not going to get the bulk of them. The public is going to get the bulk of them. But it gives you access to a series of real world events. I'll leave it at that. And as well as online events. And when you take the $11,000 price, if this event keeps occurring for, you know, I don't know, a decade, five years, whatever it is, man, it's going to be so worth it uh, mm -hmm. to have this level of access. And I think the $11,000 ticket would 
grow to like $100,000 in value or something. So I was like, okay, if we're gonna put 50k in, we'll put 22k in this. And then I'll let the people at our company enjoy those events, I guess, as a little perk, uh, and to also keep an eye on our investment. So I'll leave it at that. Um, the announcement will come in a couple of weeks, I think. It's so interesting. I know. Yes, yeah, somebody m- pointed out that I'm not 100% sure that's not Fred running. But um, no, well, I- it's an allocation. So it would be like, front running would be uh, the sales happening tomorrow. I work for the company, I bought them ahead of time. And nobody else had a shot at them. Mm. But I guess you could call it that. I mean, in this new world, it's an allocation, I guess is how they're saying it. Like, right. so if you I invest mean, in the like company, allocation. preferred stock, right? If you were to invest in the company before it went public, you would have an allocation already. So I put it, I would put it in that genre, or let's say you invested in a restaurant, and they were like, you can have a reservation before we open the reservations up to the public. Right. What is interesting, though, is that it's a thing that's being, de- it's like, it's described as an NFT and a digital asset and a blah, blah, blah. And what it really is, is like an early subscription to a series of events. And if we could just figure out how to break down the NFT language in a more accessible way like that, like that's a good tip for your company, right? Which is tell them that what this really is, is a token for the subscriptions and the whatever and the whatever. It's a membership. It's like so. It's a house. membership. That's it's not a membership. hard to understand. Yeah. So this is an NFT membership. Other people have NFT art. Other people might have NFTs for rights. And I think for me, the NFT rights and the NFT memberships are interesting. The art, yeah. just personally not as. But I like the rights one. So imagine you were a stock photographer, right? Mm-hmm. And you went out in your cabriolet <laughs> as 25 year old Molly, and you took a bunch of pictures of the the one and you opened them and you and I, I wanted to actually back this company. So if somebody wants to build this company, I would back it. Uh, or I should say we would back it. You go take that series of photos you took, you upload them to, you know, NFT stock photography.com. And you say, they're all uh, 50 bucks. Each photo is 50 bucks. And we get 20% of, if you resell it, we get 20% kickback. And then any use in commercial use of the photo, we get 20%. So then somebody who's an investor could say, I think that photo is going to be make a lot of money. It's an iconic photo of the Golden Gate Bridge. I'll pay 50 bucks for it. And then it gets bought because somebody wants to use it in a campaign and they pay $2,000 for it. And now you've made your money. Is that, and then the person who's the artist or the amateur artist is like, okay, I made some money to pay my rent this month. And I have mm-hmm. back end, as opposed to selling it to Getty as a uh, work for hire or something. Yep. Yeah, I still think that there is actually a, lot, a fair amount of potential when it comes to art and digital creations. And because collect look, collectors are a breed. They really are. And they yeah. will pay for a lot of stuff that we don't necessarily think is worth the money. No, but it's not for us to decide. I mean, listen, I'm watching all Mm -hmm. the time. um, Alexis Ohanian is like buying Nintendo cartridges, right? And I'm like, if I found a box of Nintendo cartridges in my house, I throw them right in the garbage, like get this out of here. Or I might like, you know, donate them somewhere. And like, he's putting them into plastic boxes, and figuring out what the condition is, and they're trading them on eBay. I'm like, really, you guys are trading cartridges? For Nintendo, there's right? got to be a I mean, billion. I mean, it's just worth yeah. what people will pay for it, and people will pay. Yeah. If they if they'll pay for Beanie Babies, they'll pay for NFT art, and we will like, pay for uh, Mustangs from 1968 to 1973. Oh yeah, so, so much. Uh, sell my house. Viva my la house difference. is on the line. It's not really. It's not. <laughs> if anybody in the uh, audience can tell us about these electric cars that are being made from previous ones, if I could buy a a 19 yeah. You know, like a muscle car, electric car. I, I might buy that no, if look it up. was. This, this company was like in the New York Times. Like they totally I remember, exist yeah. and are doing it now. Yeah, we'll find that. I, I feel I like. I just don't want to buy something that's going to be like a maintenance nightmare. That's my nightmare is like, ugh, I don't want to have to like do too much maintenance. Right. But if it was an EV and it's like no maintenance, that is amazing. That's the thing that's kind of cool. You get rid of the transmission. You get rid of the engine, changing oil, changing whatever. And you just yeah. have to deal with all tires. The hoses, like all the hoses were rotten on my 68. If I could just get yes. rid of that as a concept, like. Amazing. Uh, amazing. Oh, by the way, we're <gasps> going to do a Nodi Gang NFT drop. So we're keeping track of all the Nodis in a spreadsheet. And uh, I'm going to give Nodis, uh, you can get in this too, Molly and Nick, producer Nick. We give them nicknames like OG Bob G. And OG then Bob if, G. They, mm-hmm. if they make themselves notable in the Nodi Gang, we will make an NFT of them and airdrop it to them or just send it to them for free. I guess it's not uh, an airdrop. So I'm going to make a series mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm going to hire an artist 
and we'll have you send in your photo or we'll just make a character of you and then we'll send you your own nft how's that for a crazy grifty idea love it we don't make any money on it but we just make the noti fans rich yeah we in, drop the immutable, in the immutable record I mean, they'll be worth like, <laughs> I think they'll be worth like $10 and the gas fees will be 40. So <laughs> I know. Yeah. Like what would it cost to give it? Cause somebody educated us at producers at this week in startups.com of what it would cost to send somebody a free NFT. Like, I think that winds up costing you 50 bucks. Uh, all right, let's keep going. This is pretty fascinating. I think what is happening in China as that country cracks down mm. on these companies that have been built up. And there's been a lot of excitement about yeah. the, the tech industry in China. Um, and as China cracks down, it's also having this sort of side effect of killing the spirits of entrepreneurs in that country. And so this is in a New York Times world, a New York Times article by Lee Wan. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, she writes the new New World column uh, at the New York Times. The crackdown is killing the entrepreneurial drive that made China a tech power and destroying jobs that used to attract the country's brightest. So we covered this many times on the show uh, with China cracking down and Tencent is down 28%, Alibaba is down 49%, Didi is down 65% of uh, these public companies, New York Times quote, in place of the pride and ambition that dominated a few years ago, fear and gloom now rule as many tech companies lower their growth targets and lay off young, well-educated workers. Also, China's been cracking down on video games, as people know. They're limiting play to three hours a week as discussed on uh, all in episode 45. And uh, China hasn't given out a new gaming license since July. And so this was something I predicted. I said, yeah. you know, like, who wants to be an entrepreneur if Jack Ma disappears? Like, this is beyond like Jack Ma got taxed 70%. There was a wealth tax, you know, the stuff we're fretting over here in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, or it's difficult to open up a factory. And so, you know, Florida is easier, Texas is easier, or I don't want to pay the incremental tax in New York and California. So I'm going to move to a low tax state. This is, I'm going to be disappeared. Disappeared. And, and re-educated. And potentially re-educated mm -hmm. and made to say, I'm sorry. So who in their right mind, if you're an entrepreneur, if you think about the entrepreneurial mindset, these are very smart driven individuals and they're savvy and they see opportunities and they have great strategy uh, and their ability to understand systems. That's what the entrepreneurial mindset does. They conceive of some opportunity, some product or service. They think about the system the world in which they're going to put it out there, competition, consumers, pricing, all these dynamics. Well, if one of the dynamics is the government is going to crack down on me, mm -hmm. you might actually, if you're a savvy entrepreneur, say, this is not worth it. I'm going to find something else to do or get out of this country. Yeah. This is fantastic it's, for America. This is a really gift is. on our doorstep that yeah. an authoritarian country had massive success. And I think the Mad King Xi Jinping, the Mad King, it mm -hmm. rhymes, so that could stay. Good stick. one, love it. Um, I think Xi Jinping, the Mad King, is losing his mind for fear of losing control of the country. Mm -hmm. That's always been my theory. For mm -hmm. five or six years, I've been saying, like, and we got to pull this clip I did, Nick, producer Nick, on CNBC, when I said I would never invest in China because it's so opaque, they could change the rules at any time. And I said this on CNBC six or seven years ago, I got laughed at by the other uh, anchors and, and wow. some other commentators. And I said, listen, you know, th this is an authoritarian country. Like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Alibaba is selling this much. I was like, how do you know any of those numbers are true? Yeah. Right? Like, how do you actually know? And they kind of laughed me off. And I I it's understandable that they did because the trajectory was uh, they're going to be this hybrid of authoritarianism and capitalism. And it turns out those two things cannot coexist long term. Mm -hmm. You need democracy, de a democracy and capitalism so that the democracy can hold uh, capitalism accountable and capitalism can drive the country forward and and you know have an impact on the democracy in a positive way mm -hmm. authoritarians eventually are going to be like this is too much competition yep. right and that is 100 percent what is happening in china is that the the central banks are saying hey i don't know if you noticed but alibaba and wechat are out here offering loans and financial services and doing credit checks and allowing payments they're taking over the role of the central bank. They're even talking about creating digital currencies that will compete with the yuan. Shut it down. And yep. in the United States, you might have that fear about, you know, if you're if you're the Fed chair and you have that concern about Bitcoin, you can't do anything about it. You're not allowed to, right? Like it's a it is you can a call a hearing. You can propose you can regulation. We can create laws. You can, you can maybe take even create action a against bad product. actors. 
or you can create a command. Yeah, and you can also, you know, if somebody breaks the rules, you can say you broke the rules. We're going to go after Ripple. Like that's, you know, a, a, right. a security. It's not uh, obviously it's a security. They controlled it and it has no use in the world. So like feels more like a security to me. But yeah. I, I think this is... And chi- what's so interesting about the entrepreneurial point, too, is that a lot of these young people in China uh-huh. grew up under the experiment. Mm. Like, they're young enough. If you think yeah. about it, like, China has been this kind of... Been, had been moving toward this sort of hybrid for over a decade, right? So, let's Yeah, I would say more. It's more like 20 or 30, yeah. Right. And so, they w- don't... There were probably young entrepreneurs in China to whom it never occurred that the government could step in and say, okay, now we monitor everything that you're doing. Like, sure, they had some sense that, you know, yes, there's the party. And yes, there are certain things that we take for granted in terms of like, we don't have individual freedom and we're being surveilled all the time. They didn't realize that the long arm of China could come in and just shut down the company and shut down the industry and say like, nope, it's gone now. And so you can imagine that disillusionment is going to be massive. And mm. countries like the United States with a stronger entrepreneurial ecosystem can only benefit. I agree. It's an entire generation. It's a really interesting point because there's an entire generation there who thought they were trending mm-hmm. towards embracing the West and maybe being part of the global community. And they would be able to ring the bell and have an IPO. And yeah. you know they'd be able to travel freely to the United States and be a hero and be on the cover of magazines. And now they're realizing, nope, tall poppy syndrome, you are just one, you know, bee in the hive, there is no individualism, your individual success, your individual effort is not as important as the collective good. Uh, And that's going to be, that's the stuff that, uh, well, I think that's the stuff that ferments a revolution. And it's unlikely and the Chinese could stomp out a revolution like they ran over their own people with tanks in Tiananmen Square. Or they arrested students and took over Hong Kong and shut down basically. I mean, the New they York shut Times. down the Hong Kong rebellion. Yeah, they kicked yeah, I mean, out they, journalists. They got and... rid of the Apple. Yeah, and they arrested all the journalists. And so this is a great wake up call for people in China. And I think it's great for the West. It's like we didn't have to beat Russia; they beat themselves, right? The USSR beat themselves, and now China's beating themselves. This is what happens in communist and socialist countries mm-hmm. uh, more often than not. They wind up beating themselves. All right. So apparently, so our producers found it, the CNBC clip of Jason talking about how you cannot uh, bet on the future of China. It's 90 seconds from 2016. Nobody has any real clarity on what's going on in China. Remember, this isn't even a democracy and you have a company hanging out there, you know, sort of growing in, in a large way that the SEC is trying to figure out what's going on. So for any of us to try to pretend we know what's going on in China and with their economy, which has many thumbs on the scale and, and a lot of manipulation and a ton of corruption, and then try to understand what's going on inside of a company that's a high growth Internet company, um, very hard to have any kind of um, transparency or, or insight into this company because um, it's kind of a black box China, right? And so I, I would be very careful owning stocks like these. That being said, obviously they have a tremendous business. And, you know, they're, they're moving towards operating like an American company with a lot more transparency. And the SEC is going to force them. So it really is an interesting test case, I think. Jason, though, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a there's a cultural barrier, there's a language barrier, there's a currency barrier for New York and U.S. investors to understand this company. But if they're willing to lay out that specific guidance, 48 percent revenue growth year over year in 2017, and more transparency about the company, is that enough to make you feel confident or at least comfortable? Yeah, I wouldn't be comfortable owning anything in China in a, in a place where the government can round up you know, the press and put them in jail for what they say. Uh, so, yeah, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel comfortable owning the stock. I wouldn't feel comfortable operating in China. It's, it's a very challenged environment. You have to be a high-risk investor. I would be very careful owning the stock. I would own it only under, you know, a small, small, small percentage of uh, your, your, your overall diversified portfolio. Fascinating. Wow. Fascinating. Sometimes they get it right. <laughs> you say enough things. <laughs> I looked up Alibaba's stock price today. So at the time that you were talking in 2016, it was about $77. Okay. Today, it's 122 So, so in five years, you would have made some money. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, compared to Apple or Tesla or, you know. Yeah, it would not like, have been a great bet compared to Apple or that's Tesla. That's not a great, yeah, that's not a great rise. I mean, I, I also take the point, though, of the person in the chat who did head jobs who said, like, don't sleep on China. You don't want to underestimate because, for no. example, the USSR is gone, but Russia is still has a massive amount of influence in the world and <laughs> in our discourse and information. And, 
you know, is, is they can still be with petrochemical giants like China. They can still yeah. be a massive economic force, but in terms of an entrepreneurial yeah. disruptor, yeah, probably do themselves. You same. know, I think what, you know, people are very, op- were very optimistic at that time about China. And I think I looked at it and said, and I think the reason I was able to make that call is I believe that when you set up a game and it's rigged like China is, mm-hmm. uh, eventually somebody is going to cheat or take over. And that's what we've seen happen. And it could be cheating on the side of Alibaba or the executive team in Alibaba, or it could be Xi Jinping, the mad king could decide, you know, hey, I'm going to change the rules of the game. Whereas in America, or a democracy, you know, it's really hard uh, to cheat. You can cheat, but you're going to get caught eventually. And there's a lot more scrutiny. It's not perfect, but it certainly uh, leagues better than operating in an authoritarian country. You know, if you look at Russia, they're desperate to be relevant. And petrochemicals are becoming less and less relevant. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing is the dying, uh, the death throes of a dying empire. That's what we're seeing in Russia is like, okay, we have this other mad king with some nuclear bombs and a bunch of oil and, you know, the ability to hack people and create misinformation. Like, what are their assets, really? Oil, nukes, and a really, really sharp group of KGB agents who run the country, who know how to do psyops and yeah. hack. That's literally what level. they're good at. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not, a po- that's not a great future for the people of Russia. And China, though, does have a lot of positive things or had a lot of positive things with this entrepreneurial mm-hmm. golden goose that they just slaughtered. They literally took the golden goose and they are re-educating it and torturing it in yeah. a prison somewhere. Really stupid also, decision. It's also only good news for, not to belabor the point, but it's also only good news for America's tech giants. Because for years, I've been saying that I'm sort of fascinated by China as the only place that has incubated behind the Great Firewall competition to Google or Facebook, right? You have Baidu, you have Alibaba, you have these massive companies that don't exist at that scale anywhere else. And had they unleashed them on the world, the way that we've unleashed Facebook and Google on the world, you would have had this like clash of the titans yeah. because no one else could potentially compete. If WeChat had truly come to America, what would that have meant for Facebook? Well, I mean, look at TikTok. I mean, TikTok, all these kids are addicted to TikTok. Like they're, they're they're capable of building world-class products and uh, they're just not going to be allowed to. So go democracy. Okay. Let's wrap up with this uh, media story. Let's do it. Okay. This is a media story, but I want to present it to you as part of my VC education as like a founder question. So the story is that former New York Times columnist, uh, sort of, he's still there for some period of time and BuzzFeed editor-in-chief Ben Smith is joining this new, totally unannounced media company started by Bloomberg Media's former CEO, Justin Smith. So it's two white guys named Smith because that's media for you. Not related. Not related. Ben Smith confirmed to the Wall Street Journal that he would be a shareholder. They're going to do this new company. That here are, it's currently called Project Coda. There was, I thought, a quite devastating and perfectly executed piece in the Wall Street Journal by, or I'm sorry, in the New Yorker by this interviewer, Claire Malone, asking Ben Smith over and over and over and over, like, what is this company going to do? What are you going to cover? Well, wh- where are you going to be based? Like, what do you think is the goal? Who do you want to reach? Who's the audience? What are the beats? What are the topics? And at every point, he was like, either it's premature to talk about that or we don't know yet. So, okay. so, so there's like, so nothing about this exists and yep. Ben Smith actually got weirdly testy at oh. the prospect of being at, like he sort of ended the interview. I was like, I got to call my kid. Just text me if you have any more questions. Yeah. So then, and then Justin Smith said, when he was asked by the Atlantic, why are you starting this new venture? He said this quote, he's always talked about a market of 200 million college educated English speaking professionals throughout the world. And the big bet he's making is that they're more like each other than their individual countrymen, hmm. which okay. doesn't make any sense to me at all. So, all right. this so they, is they where... defined their total addressable market as 200 million college educated. So smart mm-hmm. college educated people. I get it. Yeah. Uh, a sought after demographic English speaking, mm-hmm. but they're global. So they could be in China, Hong Kong, Australia, Right. London, wherever, but they're college educated so. and English speaking. I get it. But to be fair, when Ben Smith was asked about that, he was like, well, maybe it's kind of global, but it's also going to be very much the US. Got it. Okay. Right. Yeah. So English first. Uh, it's not English be- first. That is all we know. English first, some news. So Got this it. is a scenario that I think venture capitalists have 
have encountered before? Because you made yeah. the point that clearly somebody has thrown some money at these guys and been like, start a thing. That it was my guess. Um, Is your guess. Uh, every five to 10 years, uh, in my estimation, um, mm -hmm. some very rich person looks at the media and says, you know what? I can fix that because I haven't been, su been successful running Amazon. So I'll buy the Washington Post and I'll fix that. Yeah. Or I created eBay on Pierre Omidyar. So I will then go buy, uh, I will start uh, The Intercept and I'll give them $100 million. Or I'm Benioff from Salesforce and I will buy, you bought Time, I think, or Newsweek? One of those two weeks. One of those, yeah. Somebody will, those, uh -huh. somebody will yeah. search for it. Uh, or I am Lorraine Powell Lorraine Jobs. Powell Jobs, and I bought the Atlantic. I will buy the mm -hmm. Atlantic. Yeah. And so these become playthings uh, for the ultra, ultra wealthy billionaire set. Yeah. Who um, like to look at problems and say, I can solve them. And the media is always had challenges. And um, you think I can, I can make this better. What they, what they always underestimate is what a persnickety hard to manage opinionated hyper intelligent difficult group of people journalists and editors are it's true and then they try to manage them mm -hmm. uh, like they're managing their authoritative authoritarian you know salesforce or amazon where these things run just completely differently yeah and it's like uh, Hollywood has a very similar process where people become billionaires. And I remember my friend Mark Cuban started making movies and buying movie theater chains. And, you know, uh, Sony went and bought Columbia Pictures and, you know, all different. Uh, uh, Jeff Skoll, my friend, uh, you know, got into movie making and did participate. So, you know, people get attracted to these two different places, Hollywood and the jur and journalism. And they're very different animals. And here's what I want to know is like, there's this idea of the known founder mm -hmm. and so that you might be willing to invest in a known founder, even if the idea isn't fully fleshed out yet. Sure. And so then this is, I guess, my question. You've got these guys. So one of them was the CEO of Bloomberg Media. The other was editor in chief of BuzzFeed, which had a pretty yep. successful IPO and, you know, really did. Not successful IPO. It wasn't going successful. from. I'm sorry, not successful IPO, not but successful IPO. did grow from listicles to like. An yeah, successful product, successful product. Yeah. And then you read an interview like this that is literally like, we don't have a, we don't, we had, don't have a clue. Would you um, put money? Are you into this? Is this something you would put money into? No, I mean, media is a terrible investment traditionally for investors because it's low margin. It doesn't scale gracefully. If you look at something like BuzzFeed, it has three or 400 million in revenue or something. And uh, they're worth like 600 million. I don't know what they're, I mean, it was, we, we went yeah, over this on right. the show. It was, I do remember that pretty brutal, um, the outcome and they're hard to manage businesses. And the only way to get scale is to add more brands together and adding more brands together makes it more complicated. So mm -hmm. Jim Bankoff who bought Weblogs Inc. Uh, for me is running Vox, a collection of all these brands, incredibly hard to have the Vox people and you know, the Verge people and whatever other assets they have curbed in one house of brands. And um, this is a vanity play. What happened was Justin Smith yeah. was talking to some very rich person while in the hand. This is my guess. Mm -hmm. Justin Smith is talking to some very rich person who he's covered before. They're in the Hamptons or they're at some dinner. And he says, yeah, you know, and they're talking about like, why can't journalism be better? Why can't it be this? And what are and this person who's got billions of dollars says, you know what, I would love to, what are your ideas? It's, oh, I think we should do this. I think we should do that. And he says, yeah, you know, I'd love to give you $10 million to seed that idea. Uh, or Pierre Almidiar gave, was it, was it number 250 million he was willing to fund the intercept up to? I don't know if he gave all that money so, up front. But a lot. Yeah. It was a lot. It was yeah. nine figures. It was shocking when it came out. Now, I think it was 25 million over 10 years or something was his idea. Um, but that's what happens with these things. And, you know, why not back the person if you if this is a rounding error for you as a you know like uh, washington post is for bezos, bezos if it's a rounding error sure why not give it a shot what i will say is be careful when you're a billionaire and then you make a bet on a publication you get in the news business when bill gates did msnbc which was microsoft the ms and msnbc is microsoft and they were going to combine with nbc and i went to the launch of that at the rainbow room in new york and the idea was they were going to do this synergy where they were going to converge news and the internet right after Bill Gates did that. And he started covering everybody <laughs> on MSNBC. Uh, that's when he became like 
you know, public enemy number one. Hmm. And, uh, you know, Washington Post gets bought by Jeff Bezos. And then all of a sudden, he starts getting a lot of heat. When you yeah. own a publication, the amount of heat that comes to you as a rich person is crazy, because then you'll be in St. Bart's. And you, Washington Post will write a story. And then you'll have your little party that like your dance party for the 70s, like, you know, uh, Bezos did. And then somebody's going to one of your famous CEO friends is going to come and be like, you guys just wrote a story about me. Right. And it's got 17 like, bro, factual errors. What the hell? And now the whole vibe of the party's killed. This happens mm -hmm. over and over again. Uh, be careful if you're a bit just unsolicited advice to billionaires. Stay out of the news business. It's not worth it. Yep. <laughs> All your friends are going to hate you. <laughs> All your friends are going to hate you. They're going to totally. hate you. And then you're going to have people who work for you who hate you because you're going to call them up and say, hey, Justin Smith, you know, I was just talking to Rupert Murdoch and you wrote the story about him and he said these seven facts are correct. And like, no, it's not. They're totally correct. And we have these inside sources. You're like, oh, well, who did you talk to? It's like, we can't tell you our inside sources. Screw you. And then all of a sudden, you're like in the middle of a bunch of cantankerous, vis uh, cantankerous journalists who want to prove their independence. And now they're going to go twice as hard as your friends at your friends. <laughs> On the topic of free speech, I feel like we should kick that very meaty conversation to tomorrow and tease ahead to it because okay. you have, I think, correctly identified one of the biggest trends of 2022 is not going to go away, which is this conversation about what kind of conversations people can have mm. and where should we right. go ahead and say stay tuned for that tomorrow? Oh, uh, yes. We'll talk about Getter and Joe Rogan tomorrow. Tease it. Tease it. We're, gonna do, we're right. doing it because I can't talk about Joe Rogan today, man. I need another cup of coffee for that. Good God. He's a <laughs> comedian, people. He's just a comedian <laughs> who loved Howard Stern and is like the new Howard Stern interviewer. And he's good at it. But he has very controversial people on. You don't need to agree with everybody he has on and that does it just because he has them on does not mean they're right correct yeah like, do you need to say that like he's gonna just put anybody he's good friends with who's the guy the crazy guy who said all the column not the columbine the um sandy hook people were false flag oh alex jones oh god i mean that guy's See? the worst human being on the planet and he's like a performance artist who says children were not murdered when their parents are burying their children and like then joe rogan has him on his pod all mm -hmm. the time apparently yeah many times yeah and he's friends with him mm -hmm. and i get it he's a comedian he's friends with a performance artist who's weird but i mean yeah, at a certain point joe rogan's got to pick better friends like like just that guy should be out of the friend circle why would he he's making tons of money i guess i mean i do like some of joe rogan's interviews i guess i think he's a pretty good interviewer i don't know i don't know it's not my jam but we will talk more about we'll talk more about it tomorrow and all this the is things a big that he teaser. wants to be able to say unfettered tomorrow on this week in startups <laughs>